The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent 2019. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We have uh, we had a, a lot of announcements. We've got a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I want to jump right into it, but I can't. First, I've got to uh, go through a couple things. So my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. And I need to give you a quick update on what's going on with us as a church. Um, it may not really look like it this morning, but because uh, this is a holiday weekend and many of our people are gone visiting family for Thanksgiving, but the past two Sundays have been back-to-back record-breaking Sundays for us as a church, attendance-wise, and God has been adding to our numbers week after week, and for that we are really grateful. We are grateful because our mission at Sacred City, as it already has been said, is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city. And we can only accomplish this by more and more people hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and being changed by the gospel. See, the more people that are changed by the gospel, the more missionaries we send out into our city to bring light into the darkness and make our cities look and feel a little bit more like the kingdom of God. So we're grateful to God for bringing people into our church. If that's you and you've joined us over the past couple months, um, we say jump into a missional community. That's where you're going to find out really what we're all about. Um, But this new growth has created some new challenges for us. Our parking lots are at capacity. Our kids' ministry is beyond capacity. We've remodeled two cottages. Those are full. We've moved kids downstairs in the basement of this theater and two classes down there. Uh, And we're quickly running out of space in here as well. And the crazy thing is, historically, Uh, We don't even grow during this time of year. (laughs) Historically, we grow the most from the new year to Easter. And so we need to make room for more people to hear the gospel. Now, our first option, what we would prefer to do, is to make room for this growth by sending out a large number of you to plant a new church. That's what we did three years ago when we planted Sacred City Moline. But unfortunately, we're not ready to plant another church at this time. We don't have a church planter ready to go. We're still at least a couple years away from that. So we've been praying about the best way to handle this, the best way to move forward as a church. We've looked into different locations. 
Uh, we're actually always looking for different locations. We've always got the feelers out there. But feel that the junior theater here still meets uh, the majority of our needs. It makes the most sense financially. It's center city, and we like being center city. We have developed a lot of rapport with the city of Davenport as we've helped renew two cottages and we've renewed this uh, theater here in the past few years. We've literally been renewing a little bit of Davenport and that's in line with our vision. So after a lot of deliberation and prayer and thought, the elders believe that God is calling us to multiply services to better meet the needs of those that the Lord is um, sending to us and those that we're on mission to. And if you've been around here for very long, you know that multiplication is a part of our DNA. We want to multiply disciples, so disciples making disciples, and we want to multiply missional communities by missional communities multiplying. We want our church multiplying, so we multiply in churches and we plant new churches. And now we're going to multiply our Sunday gathering into two. One at 8.30 a.m. and one at 10.30 a.m. And here's what I'm being told by some of my friends, some of my other X29 pastors who've already gone through this. Going to two services is also a missional move. We should expect between 25 and 40% growth in our gatherings. What that means is if we do this right, God might use it to bring even more people into his kingdom and move his mission forward here in the Quad Cities. And that, that gets me excited. That's why we're here. Uh, but this is going to be a big challenge for us. In my mind, this is kind of the third most challenging thing we've done as a church. Eight years ago, one, we planted this church, started it from nothing. That was difficult. Three years ago, we planted a new Sacred City Moline and sent people over there, half of our musicians and uh, an elder and all kind of stuff over there. That was difficult if you were around. And now going to two services, it's going to be difficult for us. It's going to require some of us to lay down our life and our preferences and our desires and make some sacrifices for God and his kingdom. Now, we've already shared this vision with our members in a members-only meeting, and now we're sharing it with all of you. Um, I guess the biggest thing we need to talk about is why is this happening? I, didn't want to, I don't like doing announcements. I didn't want to do this today. It's the first Sunday of Advent. It just feels like a waste of time for me. I don't like it. But the reason we're doing this today is because we're launching this new service six weeks from now. The 12th of January. Uh, the same day we're launching our new sermon series where we're going to go verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And we're titling this whole entire sermon series, Jesus Over Everything, because that's what Colossians is about, the preeminence of Christ, Jesus being over everything. And so we want to kind of put our money where our mouth is. That's our desire for the new year, to put Jesus over everything. That means our preferences, our desires, our hopes, our schedules, the way we normally do our Sunday mornings. Everybody's used to 9.30. I'm used, I've been doing this for eight years. Right? I got rhythms. I got four kids. I got to change all of that for this 8.30, 10.30 thing. Right? My wife sings up here. Right? We, our kids are going to have to figure out how to get their, on, on, here on their own. I'm not sure yet. But it's going to, we all have to make some changes. We've all got to accept the challenge. And here's what we need from you. If you call Sacred City your home, we're asking that you would help us by serving in at least one area of our church in Sunday morning. We need you to get involved right away. We don't need you to wait around. We need to get some spots filled right away so we can plan in the next six weeks 
how to start strong. And there's a lot of areas that you can serve in, okay? You're not sharing the gospel, so you don't have to be an expert in that. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a public speaker. Some of you, you can serve by reading scripture. Some of you can serve by reading liturgy. Some of you could serve in the front of the house by helping with coffee, by cleaning, by uh, helping with communion. There's all kinds of areas. The screens, the video, all kinds of screens behind the scenes and in front of the scenes that we need your help in. And so one of the easiest ways that you can do that is, boom, right there. We, we, if you go to sacredcitychurch.com on your phone, you're going to see that link, Sacred City Davenport Volunteer Opportunities. We need you to click on that today. You could do it right now. I'll, give, I'll, I'll forgive you for getting out your phone and doing that. You can do that right now, and you can see the areas we need you to serve. It, listen, in some of these, we need some people to serve in one or two areas because it doesn't affect the way that you worship on a Sunday morning. Um, and so we would really ask that you to fill these right away. That's all I'm going to talk about it. That's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into it. And we're going to move forward in Advent today. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful and grateful to, the work, uh, to you for the work that you're doing in our church. Um, I, I pray that you would reverse course in our heart this morning. We've been plowing ahead more than likely all week long. We've had dishes to cook. We've had gatherings to go to. We've had things to buy, things to think about, things to plan. We've been going hard. And now I ask that you would push pause on some of that and bring rest to our soul. As we enter into this new season of Advent, would you course correct us? Would you bring hope to the hopeless this morning? We give all honor and all praise and all glory to you. Father, I ask that you would think through my mind and that you would speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are starting Advent today. Some of you might be asking, you've heard this word several times, what is Advent? Well, the word Advent is taken from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. It's a translation of the Greek word perusia, Jesus used this word in Matthew 24. Let's put the scripture up on the screen. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man, look, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That word coming, that's the word perusia. All right, Jesus used it himself. So Advent is a season where the church meditates on the Advents, the arrivals or the comings of Jesus. So we spend the next four weeks thinking about Jesus' incarnation and birth and also looking forward to his second Advent, the second arrival that is yet to come. We look forward to the future. And if you look back in the history of the church, one of the historical ways the church celebrates Advent is to take the four gospel themes of hope, peace, joy, and love and focus on one of them each week. And what we're going to do this week is we're going to do that, but we're going to do that by examining a text of Scripture, Romans 5, 1 through 11, 
And each week, we're going to kind of look at this text through the lens of hope, peace, joy, or love. And today, we begin with hope. We light the Advent candle of hope. If you have an Advent wreath at home and you've got an Advent devotional, you're going to be lighting the candle of hope this week with your family. So, we're going to jump into our text this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That's where we're going. And we're going to look at it through the lens of hope. And in this text, the word hope shows up three times. But honestly, I'm only going to, I'm going to sit down in just one sentence in the scriptures this morning. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, that word justified means made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith, look, into this grace in which we stand, and here it is, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So I want to zero in on that one sentence in verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And I want to answer three questions this morning. One, what is hope? Two, what should my hope be in? And three, how do I get hope? So first, let's ask the question, what is hope? Now, I know we don't get too excited about that word hope. Hope is really not very exciting, is it? It's kind of just a weak, watered-down expression that has lost most of its potency with us. Just what is hope? We say we hope for all kinds of things. I hope Justin doesn't preach for 60 minutes. I hoped that Alabama could win the Iron Bowl. That didn't happen. Right? I hope I get something more than socks for Christmas. Right? I hope I get the job. I hope I have a retirement someday. It seems like hope is just a wish thrown out to the universe for a good future. Like hope is just a flip of the coin and we're hoping for heads. I've got a 50-50 chance things will go well for me. That's hope. Well, that is the way our culture defines and describes hope, but that's not the biblical definition of hope. The Bible uniquely defines hope as, quote, a confident expectation for the future. A confident expectation for the future. The author of Hebrews says that Christians should have, quote, a full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance. Isn't that weird? See, we equate hope with uncertainty, an uncertain future, we just hope for the, the best, yet God's word says that hope is meant to be an assurance to us, a sign and a seal. That means hope is meant to be a certainty. See, when faith looks into the future, it's called hope. And hope is a life-changing, life-defining, life altering certainty about the future. That's why the book of Hebrews says that hope is a steadfast anchor, steadfast, solid anchor of the soul. 
See, when a sailor throws an anchor down into solid bedrock, he's hoping that it holds. But that isn't a blind hope about the future. It's more than just a wish. See, a sailor has history to back him up. He's got experience and training that taught him if he lowers down that anchor in this spot, it will hold. And that anchor keeps the ship, the ship safe. It keeps the ship from going adrift. It keeps the ship from being tossed onto rocks or ground ashore by the crashing waves and wind. So come hell or high water, the ship will be safe because it has a steadfast anchor in bedrock. Now, when God says to the Christian that hope is a steadfast anchor anchor of the soul, that's what it means. It means that hope has the power to keep us safe and sound in the midst of the storms of life that wreak havoc on our souls. Now listen, we are taught by our culture that our emotions, our feelings, our desires should be trusted and followed at all costs. One of the foundational beliefs as our culture is that you can trust your feelings and you need to be authentic to your feelings and you need to honor your feelings and however you feel inside, that is your truth and you have to live out of that truth or you're not true to yourself. You're not living your best life. See, we are being told it's really being indoctrinated in every sitcom and all the shows we watch, in our music, in our kids' shows, in our educational system. We are being told that we are what we feel inside. And yet, if, if you study this at all, if you study the human soul, if you study our feelings and our desires, and maybe you read some philosophy, maybe you know some history, or maybe you just... You're perceptive and you just looked at the ways of the world or maybe you're just perceptive and you have some self-awareness. You know how unpredictable these feelings and desires are. How contradictory they are to one another. Right? We have desires to be married and have a family and be with that person for the rest of our life and yet we also have the desire to sleep around. Like, these are two contradictory desires that we have, right? Well, which one should I follow, right? Which one should I listen to? Which one should I obey? See, we never really know how we're going to feel in the moment, right? That's why some of us never make commitments. The fa our favorite thing on Facebook is the maybe button. Will you come to this? Maybe. Why? We're not saying no and we're not saying yes and it really depends on how I feel in the moment. Right? Listen, if I had a maybe button on this gathering today, I probably would not be here. Right? Last night during the middle of that game, I was not wanting any, I wouldn't want to see anybody's faces. Y'all are wicked people. The first thing you do when you see me, half of you, how was that game last night? <laughs> Roll tide, buddy, huh? Roll tide? Roll tide. Right? Wicked sinners. Right? I did not want to show my face here this morning. 
right? There's no baby on the gathering, though. Nobody's showing up. Nobody's preaching for me. So here's the deal. Our inner world, our soul, is so unpredictable, right? It's about like the weather. Is it going to snow? Is it going to rain? Is there going to be 150 mile an hour winds? I don't really know. Now listen, this is why we need hope. Real biblical hope is an anchor for our souls. It can keep us steady. It can keep us grounded. It can keep us calm. It can keep us safe. It can help us and pre like prevent us from following desires that could ruin our life. Hope for the future literally has the power to reach back into my today and change how I feel in the moment. Now, how does it do that? Well, hope has a way of reaching back from the future. Like, hope is a confident expectation that something's going to happen in the future. And it has its way of reaching back and actually changing my inner desires, changing the way I feel in the moment. See, we, we, we think our emotions are unchangeable. Our, emo, our, our emotions are eternal. Our emotions are God. Our emotions are, we can trust our emotions. But that's not the case. Because what you put your hope in and your hope actually has a way of changing the way you feel in the moment. It can change the way we respond to really difficult circumstances in life. All of it can be changed by this little word we call hope. Now, what, what, let me give you an example. Two guys are hired to flip burgers. That's their job. Flip burgers for the rest of your life. But in the hiring process, one guy gets told, listen, you're going to flip burgers, but you're going to get paid a million dollars a year to flip burgers. The other guy, you're going to flip burgers, but you're going to get minimum wage, whatever that is at the moment, Right? 25,000, something like that a year. Now, here's the deal. Same exact life circumstances, same exact job. One has a different hope. His hope is he's getting paid a million dollars to flip burgers. Both of these people on day one, they walk in whistling while they work. One's like, you know what? This is an easy job. I'm getting minimum wage. Not a big deal. The other one's, I'm getting paid a million dollars to flip burgers. He's dancing in the aisle, right? The other guy, he's just, oh, it's a minimum wage job, man. Not a big deal. The difference is 30 days from now, 60 days from now, six months from now, right? The guy's getting paid minimum wage. He's probably showing up late. He's searching the classified ads for a different job, right? He's miserable in his job. The other guy is still whistling while he works. Why? What, what's changed? One has a confident hope, a confident expectation. He's getting paid well for this thing. A million dollars to flip burgers and I'm only working 40 hours a week. This is amazing. This is the best job ever, right? Now listen, both jobs can seem very meaningless, right? They're, they're not rescuing children out of burning buildings here, right? They're flipping burgers. 
And yet one person has a hope in something that fills their burger flipping with deeper purpose, different, deeper meaning, deeper value. Their hope for the future reaches back into the day and changes the way they feel about what some would describe as a dead-end job or a boring job or a meaningless job. See, hope has that ability. It has its the ability to reach back from the future. For that person, it was the future payday of a million bucks or whatever that's going to be. And it reaches back into today and changes and inspires them to do their job with joy. His hope for the future changed his emotions and changed his attitudes in his day-to-day life. Now, I believe hope is way more powerful than most of us believe. That hope is the anchor our busy, stressed out, worried souls need right now. But this story, this little illustration brings up another good point. Where do we put our hope? The guy from the story placed his hope in a big paycheck. That's what gave his life meaning and purpose. It didn't matter how meaningless he felt his job was because he was getting paid phenomenally for it and he felt it was a gift. Can I ask you this morning, first off, we all have hope. We're all putting our hope in something. We are made to hope about the future. The question I want to ask you this morning is, where are you putting your hope? Right now, where's your hope? It's really common during this time of year to place our hope in things that won't hold it. To stick with the anchor analogy from Scripture, it's like trying to anchor a boat when the waves are churning in a bedrock of jello. It, it really doesn't matter how confident you are throwing that anchor over. It doesn't matter how big your anchor is. It doesn't matter how much hope you have. If you hope, if you throw the anchor of hope over into a bedrock of jello, it's not going to hold when the waves start tossing and the wind starts whipping. really common during this time of year to place our hope in things like the Christmas spirit, right? Clothes, the new clothes that we want to have under the Christmas tree and the promise of the updated in style, in fashion image or identity those new clothes are going to give us. The new gadgets that are going to ring and buzz and tweet and tell us how important we are. And it's even common during this season to put our hope in our family and friends. Parents, you know what this is like, right? We go through a lot of effort to make our kids enjoy Christmas. And then we dare them not to on Christmas morning, right? Do you know how much we spent on Christmas? You're going to like it or else. What is that? Christmas becomes about us. Now, we love our kids. We want to dote on our kids. God's given us so many good gifts. We want to be dads and mother like God and just not just give us a couple things, but just kind of extravagantly bless our kids to let them experience the grace of being in our home. God's a dad like that. It's okay to be a mom and a dad like that. But you know when you tie your hope to your kid's enjoyment and you watch that little brat open up that thing and throw it over their shoulder. And they look across the room at whatever their sister gets. 
That's what I wanted. On which version of the 15 Christmas lists you gave me? Right? Which edited version? Right? When we put our hope in our kids, we're let down on Christmas morning, right? And it's one of the worst things to go through Christmas and just hope and hope and hope and hope, and then you watch your kids not enjoy it on Christmas morning. Hope dashed upon the rocks of reality. Now, where should we put our hope this morning? Look back in our text. Our text says, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He, sa- he tells us to anchor our hope in this. He says, we rejoice. Now, that word rejoice, we're going to talk about it's joy, but it also means to boast, to brag, to swagger. Okay? We brag. Our swagger is caused by. We boast in, look, hope of the glory of God. Paul says our hope is meant to go down and be anchored into the glory of God. Now, more than likely, that was not a very meaningful point to you. It probably felt pretty lackluster. And if that's the case, I think I know why. We have no idea what the glory of God is. And I'll tell you, understanding the glory of God is one of the most important aspects of the Bible. If you don't understand the glory of God, you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand salvation. You don't understand what we are here for. The glory of God is one of the prevalent themes of the scriptures. It's one of the most important themes. It's one of the the biggest problems we have in our world is we don't understand what the glory of God is. If I asked you, why do you love your phone? You could ask your teenager that. Why do you shop when you feel down? Why do you desire to love and to be loved by another person? Why do you crave vacations and beaches and sunsets and mountains, and ski slopes. You know what? If I asked you these questions, I am asking you, but if you would describe, if you would answer them, and you would, what you would do is you would describe to me their glory. You would describe to me what makes these things valuable to you. What makes them desirable? What makes them good? What makes them attractive? All of those things are their glory. Now, Apple products have a certain glory. You don't have to deny that. You put it in your hand and it feels weighty. It feels valuable. It feels well-designed. It feels good. Certain vehicles, certain things that you get into, you can feel the weight of them. You can feel the glory of them. When you stand on a mountain and you look over and you see lakes and you see streams and then you get to ride a mountain bike down that thing, you feel the glory in that. When you're laying on a beach and you feel the warmth of the sun and you see the sunset and you feel the warmth of the breeze and you've got a nice drink in your hand, there's real glory in that. The problem is, 
Many of us can easily describe the glory of created things and we get really excited doing it. But then when it comes to the glory of God, to God be the glory. You look at, have a little kid ask you, Dad, what's, what is God's glory? What is the glory of God? Didn't you have catechism this week, kid? I don't know. We, we, we mumble. We look for words and we can't find them. Listen, what are you desiring when you desire a new car? What are you desiring when you want another vacation? What are you craving when you want, your soul literally wants to adore something? I want to go to a movie and just enjoy it. I want to read a book and just go, wow, that was amazing. The plot, the twist, the character development. I want to worship. I want to adore. What is my soul doing in those moments? What am I tapping into? You, in those moments where you're desiring and you're craving and you feel like you're almost being pulled along by something bigger than you, that is your soul craving the glory of God. The glory of God, now this is the cheesiest definition because I ain't got time to go into detail on it. The glory of God is the perfection of his beauty, of his truth, and of his goodness. You could say it's when his holiness gets put on display. When we can see, when God's holiness, who he is, Another big word that we could use is aseity. That's what makes God God and different from all created things. When God's uniqueness gets put on display, that's his glory. It's what human eyes were created to see. It's what the human heart was created to love, the glory of God. It's what our minds were created to contemplate, to meditate on. It's what our wills were created to choose. We were meant to choose and love and desire and meditate on the glory of God. It's what we were created to enjoy. Everything else, listen, all the other things that we enjoy in this life are merely derivatives of his glory. It's like the sunbeam from the sun. All other created things are just the sunbeam. Listen to this. I'm going to try to step into it just a little bit. Psalm 19.1 says this. We've all heard this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. They're trying to teach us something from creation about the glory of God. When you look up into the sky on a clear night and you can see what's called the Milky Way. That's the name of our galaxy. The Milky Way has about 200 billion stars in it. Billion. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across. And six. 100,000, that, that is 600, I can't hardly say this, that is 600,000 trillion miles. 600,000 trillion. I didn't know that was a number. <laughs> right? And it's 2,000 light years thick. Our sun, 
will take about 200,000 years to make a circuit around. And besides our galaxy, there are some, at some people estimate, 50 million other galaxies. Now, the God we are talking about here in Romans made this universe and all of them with a word. He simply spoke and all of the galaxies came into a being. And God himself, we're told in scripture, holds these galaxies in being. That means they don't just disappear into black holes or just, they're held by his word, by his own power. See, this is what the psalmist means when he says, the heavens declare his glory. If the galaxies are that vast and that expansive and that big and that brilliant and that beautiful, what does that mean about the creator? What does that say about the creator? He is glorious. And yet many of us, when we think about God, we yawn. We don't understand the glory of God. And Paul says, our hope is supposed to be in the glory of God. Well, no wonder our hope leaks. No wonder our hope is weak. No wonder our hope is in other things if we don't even know what the glory of God is. The heavens declare his glory. But God's glory is far more than just his size and power and there are so many scriptures I can't go to, but I'm just going to go to one more place today. And that is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The apostle says this, For God, who said, look, let light shine out of darkness. So the God who spoke the galaxies into being and light into being. This God, look, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God Where? in the face of Jesus Christ. So God's glory isn't just his vastness, isn't just his you know, expansiveness, isn't just his creative abilities. There's something particular, there's something personal about the glory of God that Jesus, the God-man, reveals to us. You can see something about the glory of God when you look to the face of Jesus. Now, what is that? Well, first off, if you go to the Bible and you go to the very beginning, you learn about creation. This is where God made it all things. And God creates man in his own image. God makes him good. And listen, you know what the reality is? When God creates him, he creates him for relationship. So God can be in relationship with man, and man can be in relation with God. And you know what? Man has what he desires. He has the face of God. He has the glory of God. He gets to walk in the cool of the day in the glory of God. His soul had what it desired, had what it was made for. But then the second scene in the story of God is called fall. It's where man chooses something other than God to make him happy. He looks for something other than the glory of God to, to, to hope in. And we know this fall goes really bad. Mankind gets cursed and sent out of the garden. Listen, in that moment, this is something so unique about the gospel story. The gospel shows both human brilliance and human depravity, and he, it holds them together. 
in our culture, most of the time people only talk about how good humanity are or how bad humanity can be. The gospel explains both reasons. The reasons we desire things and the reason why our desires are often broken and we do horrible things. It's because of the fall. We were created in the image of God to desire God and to worship God and yet we've fallen into sin and so we worship and, and desire created things to take his place in our own hearts. So in the fall, mankind lost the very thing they were made to adore, to enjoy, and to be satisfied by, namely the face of God. They were pushed out of the garden. And the long, hard, sad history of mankind is man trying to find something other than God to satisfy their hearts, to satisfy their desires. But nothing, by very definition, Nothing has enough glory to satisfy our hearts. Why? We were made in the image of God. We are an eternal soul. So we need something that's eternal to satisfy our desires. This is why a car won't do it. It's why a house won't do it. It's why another new outfit won't do it. It's why a wife or a husband or child won't do it. We need something with more glory. See, a spouse, no matter how good they are, can't compare with the face of God. Kids can't compare with the face of God. Money and status and beauty can't compare with the face of God. Think of it like this. You were made, think of it, you're a created being that was made to run on the sun. You need the sun inside of you to empower you. To, that's, a, that's the type of energy you need. And yet everything else in this world is like a nine-volt battery. You plug it in, and it works for a day and a half. You get just enough juice to wake you up in the morning. Another raise, another promotion, the hope of another house, the hope of another spouse, the hope of new relationship, the hope of a new church, the hope of whatever, the Christmas spirit. You get just enough to go in there and power you for one day and the next day. Why? The glory of created things, they have glory, but it's the glory of a nine volt battery compared to the glory of the sun. That's why the glory of created things always fades and never lasts long. So here we go. We have a glory problem. We were made to worship and enjoy God, to see his glory and worship his glory and to love his glory, and yet we've fallen into sin, and so we settle for trifles. We settle for created things. So what's the problem, or what's the solution? What did God do to solve the glory problem? See, here's the, if you read the Bible, mankind can do nothing to solve the glory problem. We can never get our way back into the glory because we've sinned and God can't be in the presence of sin. So what did God do? He didn't kill us. He didn't destroy us. He didn't throw us away and start over. God came to us. The eternal son of God put on flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. He put on flesh and he dwelled among us. God leaves heaven and moves into our neighborhood. That's the first advent. That's Jesus' first arrival, Jesus' first coming. Think of it like this. The, the face, 
the face we desire, came looking for us. And what did we do to that face that came looking for us? We turned away from him. We pushed away from him. We rebuked him. We spit on him. We cursed him. We crucified him. And Jesus cries out when all this is taking place. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is, what's going on here? Jesus, the very face of God, feels the face of the Father turn away from him. Jesus takes our place. Jesus feels the plight of humanity. Now in this moment, I no longer have what I was created for. I no longer feel the communion. I no longer sense the glory. Jesus feels the Father turn his face away. Now why did Jesus do that? Jesus took our place. He traded places with us. Why? So that we could see the glory of God in the face of him, in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. And he did it to get us back into right relationship with God the Father so that we could see the glory so that our hearts could be satisfied, so our desires could be met, so that our souls could be saved. Have you seen that glory? Paul said once he saw the glory of Jesus, quote from Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value, surpassing value, the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, this is where we get a living, unshakable, steadfast anchor for our soul. This is where we get our hope from the face of Jesus Christ, from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in Jesus. Now, this is it. I'm closing. There's more. When Paul says for us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God, he's not just talking, Christians, he's not just talking about the glory that we've already seen, the glory of... The, the gospel past. He's talking about a glory that's on the way. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, so I know a little bit about a little bit. Then I shall know fully. Then I'm gonna know completely, even as I have been fully Known. See, Christian hope, here it is, is not based on what might happen to us in the future in this life. Rather, Christian hope is the certainty of what is guaranteed to happen based upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the glory of God that we will see on his second advent will be the glory of God that satisfies our souls for eternity. So this season, as we're walking through it, it's not just about looking back at the manger. It's looking to the skies in glory. 
It's looking forward in hope that he said he was going to come and he came in a manger. And he said while he's on earth, he's going to come again, this time splitting the eastern sky, right? And when he comes back, then our souls will have what we were made for. The glory we see now in the Bible, the glory we see now all around us, the glory we see now in redemption, the glory we see now in the face of Jesus Christ is the appetizer. It's good. But it can't compare to what's coming in the future. The glory of the resurrection. The glory of the future glorification. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth. The glory that we will have what we were created to have. And that is God himself. You know, if you go to the book of Revelation, that's how the story ends. God, once again, comes down, renews all the world, and now we don't even need a son. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the light. He is the one that keeps everything together. He's the one that renews all things. He's the one that we were built to behold and the one we were built to love and adore, and we will get to have him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're celebrating this morning. And that's, you know what, that's what we do every Sunday. A little piece of that, when we come and we take the Lord's Supper, we're eating in hope for the future. And it's not just a wish. Why? Because this is the, it represents the body and the blood of Christ. It's already been inaugurated. It's already been started. Jesus has already came. He already died. He's already secured our salvation. He's already secured the future. So when we eat it, man, we're eating it in hope of a, of a confident expectation of what is going to happen in the future. I pray that as we eat it this morning, as we take it in, that that future reality would reach back into our day and it would change our emotions, it would change the way we feel, it would change our desires. It would just turn our desires for God up to 10. Ask him to do that in your heart this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that is here, that you are speaking to your people. And I pray this morning that you would, these words that we read and we maybe quote them and we say them, I pray that these words would come alive to us. That you would spur people on, maybe even to leave here today and go search and study and read about the glory of God, to meditate on the glory of God, and their hearts would enjoy it. We thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming, and we look forward in anticipation of your second coming today. Now as we take the, the elements this morning, the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, Father, you, Jesus, you tell us to do this as often as we come together. I pray that you would let this be a meal of hope, that you draw glory from this meal, and we would find communion with you in this meal. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.